This episode of Accelerate is brought to you in part by Discover.org. Looking to close four times as many deals in half the time? Discover.org's industry-leading human-verified sales intelligence gives you all of the data and insights like direct dials, org charts, planned projects, verified emails, and executive moves. You need to stop wasting time on research and spend more time talking to the right decision maker with the right message at the right time. Their team of 250-plus sales researchers do all the work so that you don't have to. 2,500 companies are already using Discover.org to win more deals. So check them out at www.discoverorg.com. That's www.discoverorg.com. It's time to Accelerate. This is Andy. Welcome to episode 616 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. And Happy New Year to everyone. This is the first episode of Accelerate in 2018. I hope everyone is excited about 2018 as I am. I know I'm looking forward to meeting a ton of interesting new people. I mean, learning everything I can from the fascinating and thoughtful people that join me on this show, as well as serving my clients and my members with valuable new services. Yeah, we're going to have lots of interesting uh, introductions this year, if you will. So we'll keep you apprised of those as the year goes by. And uh, looking forward as well to some of the usual adventures that uh, on the personal front that I take with my wife, family. We've got some big trips planned. So, exciting year coming up. All right. So, down to business. Joining me today on Accelerate for the first episode of 2018 is my guest, Daniel McGinn. Daniel's the author of an interesting book titled Psych Up How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. And the question is, you know, how do you psych yourself up for a big sales call or an important face-to-face meeting with a key stakeholder at a big prospect? I mean, we've all have our rituals that, that we use. Well, in, in his book, Psyched, Dan McGinn has researched these rituals that we all use and found that actually many are, are useless or counterproductive in helping us prepare uh, even though we think they are helping us. so, But there are some rules and some things I found in research that rituals that can definitely help you mentally prepare for that big meeting or big conversation. And we're going to jump into all of that today. So make sure you stick around. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, go to antipaul.com forward slash 616. Now, before I get into it with Dan, let me remind you that today's show is brought to you by our, f- our friends at Discover.org. The Discover.org platform is a game changer for sales and marketing professionals. This feature-rich sales intelligence platform is supported by more than 250 researchers who continually are updating the data, the contact data, and providing account-specific insights to help your sales and marketing teams break ahead of the pack. So see the product live at discover.org.com forward slash schedule hyphen demo. All right, let's jump into it, Dan McGinn. Dan, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you. So, pleasure to have you here, and I really look forward to the conversation. So, I guess before we jump into that, I have a standard opening question I ask all my guests, and or at least in this phase of the show as I do. And that question is, in your mind, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? So, I should say, first off, I'm not a sales rep nor a sales manager. Um, So, what I know about sales, I get from two places. I have a lot of friends who are in sales as a profession. And at Harvard Business Review, where I work, I edit most of our sales uh, coverage. The thing that I hear the most in both of those contexts about is the lack of decisiveness. The Not that people are losing a sale, but that they get essentially to a no decision, things mm-hmm. stalemate kind of thing. Um, 
I've seen research from CEB that looks at how, you know, the decision-making process has gotten bogged down in a lot of companies. And I think that's a particular form of of frustration. Um, It reminds me a little bit of the Al Gore line about the 2000 election. You win some, you lose some, and then there's this whole other third category that you don't think about. Um, I think a lot of salespeople are experiencing that third category where they never categorically lose the sale. They just, you know, it gets stuck in this quicksand of corporate bureaucracy, unclear decision authority. And uh, I can understand how frustrating it is. It's a big problem for companies. Yeah. And I, well, I, I, <laughs> you know, that's, that's one of these things that for me is like, okay, yeah, but, but is it getting worse? Right. I mean, I, I granted, I respect CEB and the work they do, but, but, it still seems somewhat anecdotal to me, this this evidence about companies having a harder time making decisions and whether they're you know having a harder time than they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, not clear to me that's that's actually the case. I mean, there's as I said there's a lot of talk about it, but I mean I I'm not sure I see a lot of change. So I do find the numbers, you know, I, I'm somebody that that tends to look at numbers and, and, uh, I like data. Um, so the fact that I've seen data, but this also, it corresponds with what I see in my own business life in the sense that organizations are more collaborative more, more matrixed, less authoritarian, um, products are more likely now to cut across categories. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I can I can understand why just looking at how our organization makes decisions, um, there seem to be more people in the room than there used to be because the products touch more people or they're more complicated or right. the IT department needs to have a say in everything if it's related to technology. Um, so even if the even if the numbers weren't there, it corresponds with what I'm seeing in my own corporate life. Yeah, no, I'm, and I don't disagree with with the premise that there are more people who have their finger in the pie in terms of when it comes to stakeholders, when it comes to actually decisions being made. There's more in response to, is it more frequently resulting in a no, what I call the no decision decision, and and yeah, I'm not. It's not clear to me that's really what's happening yet. I mean, I still, I still think more of that happening is more of a sales failure than a, a buyer failure. Yeah, I defer to your expertise on this. As I said, I have. Uh, I'm an observer of the sales world. I'm not a participant, um, so uh, you know my my information is secondhand at best. Well, yeah, but it could be more on the spot than those of us who are so deeply involved in the weeds. But so let's let's talk about an aspect of it. Let's talk about your book. And so, as I said, uh, you've written a really interesting book called "Psyched Up: How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed." So. Question, first of all, why this book? I mean, what what triggered the urge to write about this topic? So it really came from three places. Um, the first goes way back to when I was a teenager. I was a high school athlete. Uh, I played on the football and basketball team. I was not particularly good. I wasn't a starter. Um, but I became fascinated by the things that the players and the coaches would do in those moments leading up to the game. The pep talks, the music we would listen to, the creation of rivalry. Basically, the ways that people would um, would manipulate their emotions to try to boost their performance once we took the field or the court. So 
that was the first thing. The second thing was once I got out of high school and college, I would occasionally run into professional people, most of them former athletes, who had some version of a pregame ritual before they went into court to argue a case or before they went into the boardroom to pitch an idea. So I began to see professional applications of this. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing was, I started working at Harvard Business Review, where my job involves looking at a lot of academic literature. And every so often, I would see a paper come across my desk that would deal with exactly this kind of thing. They would take group A and have them do something before a performance activity and, and a control group that did nothing. And things like power posing, which is one of the examples of this kind of thing. Somebody who would put their body in a certain stance mm -hmm. before the presentation would come off as more powerful. So I saw enough studies here to realize there's actually a research-based science behind this stuff. I think this could make a good book. Yeah. And it, the, the, well, we'll get into the research because I mean it, it points in in some really interesting directions. Um, but I think that's one thing that's sort of interesting. You get into the book is this you know this mental image of psyched up. Oftentimes, yeah, we equate it with sports, right? It's you know football players jumping up and down in a huddle, you know, before running on the field, or or <laughs> I remember my my freshman year in college, I lived next door to a guy who was on the varsity football team and. He would spend the night before a game literally banging his head against the wall because one of his teammates was on a room the opposite side of him, on the other side of him, banging his head on the wall, yelling, get psyched up, <laughs> boom, boom. And I thought, now we're thinking about really getting psyched up and getting the mental preparation. You said these rituals, which is oftentimes sort of about calming and becoming centered, uh, less about the yeah, sort of frenzied emotional state. Yeah, when I began the reporting, I had a very simplistic view of what it meant to get psyched up, and it was one that was drawn from athletics. I t tended to think of getting psyched up as sort of like a light switch. You would turn it on, and a lot of what turning it on meant was you would begin to feel that adrenaline in your body that would kind of amp you up and, and bring you into this sort of highly energized state. And clearly, you know, if you think about sports, that's an, that's a valid uh, metaphor. Once you actually read the research, though, I became much less focused on adrenaline and a lot more focused on emotions. And I began to think not of a light switch that you would turn on and off, but more like a set of stereo dials that you would try to tune. And mm -hmm. the three dials I think about most are anxiety. You, in most cases, you probably want to try to crank your anxiety down if that's possible. The second one is confidence. Generally, the more confident you are before you perform, the better you're going to do. So you try to find ways to crank that up. And then your energy level. You know, if you're pitching to a room of three people, that's a lot different than pitching to a room of 300 people. Um, depending on the activity you're doing, you need to calibrate that energy level to the task at hand. So those right. are the three dials that I think most about. Yeah, when I think in, in general the book, because I was reading through it, it's it's you know, granted the titles can help you succeed, but in I didn't really think about it in the terms of the classics or definition of winning, but more in terms of being able to perform under pressure, right? I mean to be able to visualize what success in that that context looks like and be able to perform to that that expectation. Yeah, one of the most interesting days I spent when I was reporting the book was at the Juilliard Music School in New York. And you know, they spend a lot, obviously a lot of time practicing their instruments there, but they also offer an entire semester course for their musicians on how to get emotionally and mentally ready for an audition. And the reason they spend so much time on that is that they've found through, you know, decades of experience that it doesn't matter how well you 
learn to play the violin if you don't know how to handle the nerves and the pressure that go along with a once in a lifetime audition opportunity you're not going to be able to play to your best and so learning to sort of layer that emotional preparation on top of the substantive practice that made you a virtuoso that they think that's worth uh, worth their time and their money and their energy to try to learn those techniques there it's a great example and i think that's you don't need to be a viol- violinist for that to be true i think if you're a litigator if you're a surgeon if you're a salesperson if you're an athlete these things are all true yeah well i love one of the examples you give in the book about the the way they train i want the training exercise they did and i i forget the kagemoya i think was the professor's name or something that that uh had them physically exercise, you know, get their heart rates really up and then sit down and start playing. Um, which yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's great, great training, right? For, you know, how do you suddenly, you know, regain control of your breathing? And, you know, I, I, there's always this uh, line I love that I heard from a, a coach that was, was coaching me on a, a bicycle uh, <laughs> training. And, and, you know, he talked about, Calm your mind, calm your breathing, control your chaos. <laughs> I thought, I was thinking about that. I was reading the exercise about those those kids. So, you know, running around, getting their the heartbeat up, and then sitting down trying to play the, the violin or cello or whatever instrument it was. Um, it was yeah, you got to control your chaos really quickly. Yeah, that's a great example of... Um you know, you're, we are biological creatures, and if we're put into certain situations, our body's going to go into fight or flight mode, and our heartbeat is going to go up, our respiration rate is going to go up, our skin is going to sweat. And if you're an instrument player, especially if you're playing a, a wind instrument, you know, that's a problem. Mm. Uh, if, if you're playing a string instrument and your fingers get sweaty, that's a problem. Um, so you need to learn to basically deal with what are going to be adverse conditions. Um, it's not that much different than, you know, when Michael Phelps was training for the Olympics, occasionally his coach would have him in the middle of a race, have him dislodge his goggles so that right. he had to learn to swim with, with water in his eyes. And in fact, during one of his Olympic competitions, yeah, it happened. Yeah, 100 meters, um, 100 meters, they touched out the guy in, in uh, London, I believe. That exa- yeah. Exactly. So yeah. it, it's sort of the same theory that um, we train under these optimal conditions where everything is going to go perfect, but we're not um, training for the stress our body's going to feel in a real life situation or if something goes wrong. And the Juilliard program is really good at putting kids into both of those situations. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that a little bit when I was reading the book about early sales training that I went through where we were doing role plays in front of the class and um, people had instructions at various times in the class they were observing to shout things out <laughs> and, you know, unexpectedly, you know, that you had no idea was coming. And it was really meant, I think, to sort of, you know, stimulate that anxiety and then see how quickly you could come back into the moment with the prospect that you're doing the role play with. Yeah. It's, I didn't necessarily have sales in mind when I was writing this book, but as soon as the book came out, I began to hear from companies that where the sales manager was having the whole team read it because there's something about this idea that um, you know we can substantively make sure as salespeople that we know our product, that we know how to counter objections, how to answer questions, how to listen ab- empathetically, do all the things that uh, salespeople in the modern economy are trained to do, but that if we go into the meeting and we don't feel confident enough or we're a little bit on the anxious side – uh, our chances of success are going to be diminished a bit. And that sort of tweaking our emotions, especially in those moments right before you go into the room, can be you know 
the make or break, the thing that makes a difference. And it's one thing to say, okay, be more confident. It's another to say, okay, here are five things you can do in those moments before your presentation that can help you be more confident. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, the example you gave up, which is actually in the early part of the book with the Dr. McLaughlin, the surgeon that had his you know five part ritual that he went through. Some of which I think are you know very applicable because it's it was these visualizations, right? You you said you know he paused, you know tried to forget what happened early in the day, then thought deeply about the patient, you know who they are, what the mission was, what the vision was, reviewed his plan, stated some affirmations. His case did a quick prayer. And that's what worked for him. And I thought it was sort of interesting you contrasted that with, you know, maybe his colleagues who are checking their phones and so on beforehand. And I was like, yeah, I think I'd rather have the guy that spent a few minutes going through a ritual and mentally prepared themselves than was checking their email before setting it down and slicing me open. Yeah, he's thought very deeply about what he can do both in those moments before he operates and just in the environment of his surgical suite to make him feel just on top of his game all the time. One of the other unusual things he does is in his surgical tray, he's a neurosurgeon, he's operating on brains and spines. He keeps a set of instruments that was invented by his mentor. And uh, those surgical instruments, they're called, I think they're called Geneta tools. They're kind of obsolete right now. People don't really use them anymore, but he keeps them there within his line of sight. He never really touches them, but he they remind him visually that he was trained by one of the best neurosurgeons in America. He feels like this comforting presence as if the guy is almost in the room with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it might sound a little bit odd or a little bit hokey, but there's actually research that physical objects can have this kind of meaning. Um, I, I have a special keyboard that was used by Malcolm Gladwell, the nonfiction writer. Mm-hmm. I don't use it every day, but I write on it sometimes when I'm feeling especially pressured about an assignment. And it does help me feel more confident knowing that you know one of the best writers in the world used this keyboard. I talked to a salesperson the other day who, before he makes an important phone call, he puts a crown on his head. And it was the crown he was given when he was voted the king of his senior prom, right. And which is an odd thing to do. But it reminds him that he has the ability to connect with people and build rapport and that he's just generally a likable person. And that's the emotion that he wants to feel before he gets on the right. sales call. Right. Well, as you said in the book, it's not weird if it works, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's that's sort of one of the phrases that sticks out you know, as you go through this book is that science notwithstanding, I mean, some of the stuff, yeah, science may validate that it works. But as you said, we have no idea really why a lot of this stuff works. But again, it's not weird if it works. And so, for instance, I mean, did you have a ritual before coming on the show today? So, yes. I Before I did the book, I wouldn't have. But... Um, and it's it's not the weirdest ritual in the world. I think it's one that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews for this book, but actually, if you ask me, what's the best interview I've ever done? It was actually for a book I wrote a few years ago. It happened to be on NPR, and I think it was a combination of I just was on my game that day, and they have really good editors at NPR that really just sort of burnished this three-minute audio interview and made me sound you know, smarter than I really am. And so before I come on a program like this, I'll often pull that clip up. It takes like two or three minutes and listen to myself give a really articulate, smart interview. It reminds me, hey, you know, when you have your A game, you can mm-hmm. really do this well. It puts me in a mindset that makes me feel confident. It reminds me, it's kind of a greatest hit strategy. Um, and I've seen athletes do this too. I went to West Point when I was reporting the book 
And at West Point, they actually make these custom audio narratives for the athletes there. It's like a, it's almost like a highlight reel, but it's an audio highlight reel recalling their best plays backed by music. And the athletes are told to listen to this before games. And it makes sense that if you're about to go off and do a certain activity, why wouldn't you want to reflect on the last time you did that activity sure. really successfully? Yeah. Well, especially if you're an undersized military academy team going against a Division One football team. Yeah, I'd want to be psyched up for that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a ritual that I, I follow. I mean, I, I mine's... <laughs> to even think about it makes me smile because it's... And, you know, for me, that's the... that relaxes me and makes me smile is, is I just I say the word action. I have sort of a over... <laughs> over-the-top way I say it to myself. But it it makes me smile and it just relaxes me and and if i'm going on stage talking to a group or doing even every day doing these interviews yeah it's just something i do yeah there's research on into why something so that's that would be considered a ritual it's something you do yeah. the same way every time so then the question is so there's descriptive research that looks at people who have a ritual, compares them to people who don't, and generally speaking, the people who have a ritual are going to perform better. And then there's a second set of research where they'll take people who don't have a ritual, they'll teach some of them to do something before they perform, and then they'll compare the two groups. And generally, people who are taught to do a ritual tend to perform better. So the question is why? What is that ritual really doing for you? So there's two theories. It's, you can't really scientifically prove either of these things, but these are what people think. So number one, the ritual sort of functions like an on switch. It's something that sort of gets you into the groove and the habit. It reminds you of how often and how well you've practiced at this. So it sort of has like, it's like a launch sequence kind of mm -hmm. turning it on. The second thing is, if you didn't have that little ritual, especially if this was an event that you might be nervous about, you're probably just going to sit there stewing and being nervous, and that's only going to hurt your performance. So some people believe that the reason these rituals and these checklist kind of activities help is that they crowd out more destructive kind of negative thoughts. They give us something to do at a time when we might otherwise be anxious. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it seems like a lot of what what's in the book you're talking about is is, and I think that. You, know, you you mentioned how we basically have this wrong. You know, telling people to calm down is not the right the right response when people are feeling anxious and nervous about something they're going to perform. It's it's really about how we harness our anxiety under conditions of stress, right? To to be able to perform. And you talk about you know you have certain dials that you can you can dial down. I mean, I just thought there's sort of interesting research and maybe talk about it a little bit the Yerkes Dodson law. I thought that was. That was really interesting in terms of really what's sort of the optimal state of mind that you want to be in. Right. So Yerkes Dotson is a, a more than 100-year-old psychological theory that shows that people perform better not if they have no anxiety and not – if they have massive anxiety, but if their anxiety or stress level is somewhere in the middle. So you wouldn't want to turn your anxiety all the way down to zero because, you know – That'll result in a lack of energy, and right. you know people don't perform well when there's no stress at all. the The thing about the problem with telling people to calm down is that in a in a situation where it's natural to be nervous, you're fighting against biology at that point. You know, if your body's flooding with adrenaline 
and somebody's telling you to calm down, well, there's nothing you can do to actualize or, or make that happen. You, you know, you, you can only do so much to fight the adrenaline in your body. In that situation, the research suggests you're better trying to focus on a positive agitated emotion like excitement or the mm -hmm. opportunity. Mm -hmm. So some of the research that's been done on this, they've actually taken people, put them in a singing contest and had one group of people say, I'm nervous before they sang. And the other group would say, I'm excited. Right. And the, the judging shows that people who think about excitement in a positive sense tend to do better. And it's a very simple and subtle shift, but it's one that seems to work for people. Well, and I think when you think about this in a sales context is, is that's really, really relevant because, you know, think about, you know, salespeople going into, you know, presenting in front of a crowd or talking to a, a group of clients or to a client individually or having an important sales conversation or even a negotiation or something like that is the anxiety is, to my mind, is really more of a fear of failure, right? In that moment. And yeah, being able to convert that to excitement, saying, which is really a sense of confidence, as you had mentioned before, is one of the three levers you can manipulate or three dials you can manipulate, I think makes, makes, makes a difference in the outcome, right? I mean, if you're excited to go do this because it's an opportunity, not I'm nervous to do it because it's an opportunity to fail. No, I'm excited to do it because it's an opportunity to succeed. And that, that mindset is, is one that you see is a real clear difference between, I think, the sort of the top performers or people that can perform consistently well and those who don't. Right. Uh, and I think especially in a sales context and especially in sort of the modern complicated kind of sales complex er, con process, not only is it an opportunity to get into those late stage pitch negotiation scenarios, but you don't get there unless you've earned it. So this isn't just an opportunity that came down and struck you like lightning from heavens. This is an opportunity that you created yourself through your sales prowess. You know, there were certainly steps upstream from here that if you hadn't been successful at it, you wouldn't even have this opportunity today. So in that particular context, I would not only reflect on being excited that you have this great opportunity to succeed, but that the reason this great opportunity exists is because you've done such a good job in steps one, two, and three to get to this point. Um, so again, it's sort of reflecting not just on the potential upside here, but it's also reflecting on how well you have been doing your job professionally to get this opportunity on the table. Yeah, I think in later stages, absolutely. But you know, oftentimes sales, a good portion of it's at the beginning stages, right? Where you're trying to connect, you're trying to engage with another person, you're trying to, you know, engage the emotions of the other person, right? So you can build up the trust that you need in order to make progress in, in building that relationship. And I think that, you know, again, being excited at the opportunity is, is really essential. I mean, I, I remember, you know, my early days, years and years ago, out physically making cold calls, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 calls, cold calls a day, depending on the day. Um, yeah, if you were, had high anxiety every time you were knocking on a door, it was going to be a very short stint doing that job. I mean, for me, it, it became, I had to look at it from not necessarily the half glass half full, but it's just like, yeah, this, this is the one, right? This is the one that's going to be the one <laughs> that, that I turn into a sale. And having that sort of optimism and confidence every time I went in. Yeah, I think, you know, there's few professional kind of jobs that are going to be harder than uh, a cold calling environment because of um, the repeated rejection that's inevitable. And that's the kind of environment where, you know, finding ways to tweak your emotions to try to be relentlessly positive and optimistic 
is going to really help someone. And some of the tools are, you know, fairly simple. So music is, is, can be a great motivational and energizing mm-hmm. device. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not necessarily in a cold calling environment, but, you know, people who are driving to their sales call, yeah, you can listen to sports talk radio, you can listen to the news. Um, but, you know, I absolutely know salespeople who have playlists that they listen to on oh, yeah. the way to their sales calls because they know that they need to be up and on their game and that, a good mix of songs that they've selected for themselves can tweak those emotional dials and put them in the state where they're going to succeed. Yeah. It's sort of through the first, let's say 300 episodes of the show. I had actually was asking that question of all the guests and, and actually surprisingly seventies headbanging rock was the number one music choice. Uh, overall ACDC was, was a huge favorite for psyching yourself up for a sales call. It's funny, for the book, I went and worked with Spotify, the online music mm-hmm. company, mm-hmm. and they'd never done any work on this before I called them, but they actually did a search and they looked for every playlist in their system that had variations of the phrase psyched up in it. And a lot of it was, you know, the music you describe, ACDC and Poison and kind of like right. hard rock 80s anthem kind of music. Yeah. And I think some of that is demographic. Um, there's research into what makes a certain song motivational. Part of it has to do just with the song itself in isolation, how the musical notes are put together, how the words sound. But a big piece of it is emotional context. And for many people, the songs that are most meaningful to them are from their teenage years. So, you know, if you ask somebody what's on their psych up playlist, you know, it could be any mix of songs, but oftentimes it will be songs from that are around when they were 16 or 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. Well, I always just laugh with my son when I, he was on a traveling soccer team I think he was about 12 at the time. And and on the way to games, he loved to listen to Foreigners, Hot-Blooded. And it wasn't until, I used to laugh at it because, as you said, the emotional context. It wasn't until he was older that he understood it was about you know, the band members and a groupie, but <laughs> an underage groupie to bat. But uh, that that really got him in the mood. Uh, you know, everybody's I'm, uh, everybody's song will be different. I met a woman while I was reporting the book, and I referred to her in the book. Her Get Psyched songs were the soundtrack from the musical Annie. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted to be very sort of happy and upbeat, and songs like The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow, which is about as far away from ACDC as you can get. Um, that's what worked for her. And, it, you know, again, there's no wrong choices here. If you want to put a crown in your head before you make your yeah. sales call, and I want to write in a, on a computer keyboard that used to be used by a guy at the New Yorker. Well, you know, all three of those things are kind of weird. Um, but if it works for us and it makes us think that we're more confident and more likely to perform well, then that's absolutely something we should learn to do. <laughs> the sun will come out tomorrow. Yeah. You know, some inter- interpretation of that song is that it's, it's uh, much more wistful than, than, than outright confident. But, um, I like the part about centering as as a technique, and uh, maybe just before the end of the show, we talk about that because you you have a process. I think you took somewhat from another author, or cited another author, uh, but the thing is that they're saying this is something you can do that would center yourself in ten seconds or less, and and I thought, okay, that's that's a very useful thing for people to know. Sure. Centering is one of the things they teach in that Juilliard program I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The guy the guy who's done the most work on it is a sports psychologist named Don Green, and he has a book out on how to do it. My take on centering is, well, it's a series of breathing and 
thought exercises. I compare it a little bit to yoga in the sense that it's hard to understand how to do it if you just read about it in a book. You really need to sort of experience. Like you need kind of need somebody to teach you how to do it. There are some decent videos on YouTube if you look under the word centering um, that can you can sort of see how someone does it. Um, it's the kind of thing where just text alone is going to be hard to really instruct people in it. But people who've learned to do it say that even in like a crowded backstage chaotic environment, 10, 15 seconds, they're able to really calm their body down and focus their thoughts. So people who, it's like mindfulness, people who learn to do it really do swear by it. Yeah. Well, I think at that's the point I was going to make is, you know, people that, that have practiced meditation, mind, whether it's mindfulness meditation or Zen meditation or whatever form they, they've done is that, you know, I've done some of that and maybe not to the point where these people are more expert at, but where they find that they can actually sort of get to that place they go to when they're meditating and invoke it really quickly. And yeah, that whole centering process, you know, leaves them feeling, yeah, far, well, centered. Yeah. Far less anxious, maybe still excited and ready to perform. Yeah. I think, you know, the main message in the book is that you're going to be better off if you have a plan. You know, if you know, if you tried some of these techniques, you find the ones that work for you and, you know, you certainly don't scrimp on practice, the substantive getting good at what it is you need to do to perform. But then in those last few minutes, have a set of activities, whether it's music or whether it's centering or whether it's recalling your greatest hits, whether it's some physical object that's meaningful to you. Do something that's going to try to put your emotions in the state that put you, make you more likely to go into the room and really perform the way you're capable of performing. Yeah, and that physical object thing, like, you called it, I guess, positive contagion. Uh, when you had some interesting stories about that in the book too, is you know, with like the example of study guides that people use. That you know, if they're taking a standardized test, they would use, want to use a study guide that somebody had scored well on the test had used. Yep, there's research on that. There's also research on golf clubs. Uh, people were uh, in a very sort of controlled scientific test environment. People were given a putting task. Half the people were told they were using a former PGA professionals club. They putted about a third better than anybody else. There is this sense that if you're using an object that was used by a very experienced high performer in the past, that somehow it rubs off on you. Um, uh, so whether it's a computer keyboards, you know, college students will have a lucky pen. Um, you know, these things can be meaningful to people. And, you know, some people say it's the placebo effect, uh, but the placebo effect, as lots of studies have shown, can be pow very, <laughs> very powerful, powerful in medicine. Yeah, that's right, it can works. be very powerful at work as well. Yeah. Well, good. All right. Well, Dan, thank you very much for joining us today. Tell folks how they can find out more about the book and connect with you. Sure. The book is called Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. It's available at online booksellers and physical bookstores. My Twitter is at Dan McGinn, and the website for the book is www.psychedupthebook.com. Excellent. Well, good. Well, again, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, friends, thank you for spending this time with me today. Make sure you come back, join me for the very next episode of Accelerate. Until then, if you get a chance, appreciate if you go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast, leave us a review, and uh, we want to hear what we can do to make this a better experience for you. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 